This is the At 530 on Main podcast. I'm Sean Collins. And I'm Mike Davis. And we're here to discuss the convergence of digital and physical experiences in today's world. With Extend Group as an expert in designing online experiences and VPS Architecture, an expert on creating physical experiences, you will hear unique discussions on technology, theory, and more that merges our separate areas of expertise into one podcast experience. Thanks for tuning in. We hope you enjoy today's At 530 on Main podcast episode. So today we are on At 530 on Main with Mike Davis from VPS Architecture. And we have Jason Shelley from AIA Indiana. He's the executive director. He was born and raised in historic downtown Madison, Indiana. He has a Bachelor of Science degree in political science, and he's going to share a little bit about AIA Indiana with us, as well as design trends, as we always like to talk about how the digital experience is interacting with the physical experience. And first of all, welcome to the podcast, Jason? Yeah, thank you. Very happy to be here. And Mike, how are you today? Doing good. Yeah. Looking forward to a good conversation. So uh, born and raised in historic downtown Madison, Indiana, what was that like? It was a great place to grow up. When I was a kid in Madison, you have kind of like down by the river and then up on the hill. And so either they lived on the hill or downtown. So I got to spend my entire life, young life, being uh, downtown Madison. So you had the river, you had you know, Crystal Beach Swimming Pool, which was an old, you know, WPA works project swimming pool, beautiful, play basketball, hydroplane racing, creeks, um, uh, railroad tracks to climb up Clifty Falls State Park. I mean, it was like, it was a great place to grow up. That's awesome. So, uh, as we talked a little bit before we went on air here, we were talking about hydroplanes. That was a big part of your uh, life growing up. Yeah, that was a massive part of every summer. It's just Going down to the river, you'd hear the, they were called thunderboats. Right. And you'd hear those things thunder through the valley, especially in Madison. I mean, it just echoed through the entire valley. And so you'd, you'd wake up in the morning, you'd hear a boat out there testing. Yeah. You'd jump on your bike and go flying right down to the river to check it out. There's no better way to spend a, a summer day than hanging out at the river watching hydroplanes. That's right. Did that experience influence your, your love of design at all? Yes. Back then, kind of same with like IndyCar racing. Every year there was like a new, you know, a new boat, one or two new boats or every year, you know, new cars at the Indianapolis 500 with new and different designs to see what would work, uh, what would be faster, what would be better. And so, you know, every year you got really excited to say, okay, what what are the new boats? What do they look like? What do the liveries look like? You know, so every year was a brand new test to see, you know, who could do it a little bit better. And you still have a little bit of that, but not nearly as much. I, I hate that we've lost that, but it is what it is. It is what it is. The uh, community embraces it, and it comes in and it comes out. I was at uh, the Indianapolis airport a couple weeks ago and uh, was flying out to Florida, and they had one of Mario Andretti's Indy 500 winning cars there, and and it did. It looked like a plane. They had the uh, the front aerodynamics and then the side they had them coming out look like a uh, f-16 on that series and i've never seen that ever yeah they do a nice job at the airport of, of kind of celebrating the kind of racing heritage of indianapolis and they always and they switch them out every so often where they'll have both concourses will have a different car every few months and you know my son's a big auto racing fan and so every time i'm on a trip i always take a picture of the car you know okay text him with us here's the different car they have this time yeah so yeah it's 
Pretty nice. The Indianapolis Airport does a nice job in trying to celebrate heritage of Indiana. So when you look at the history of Indiana, how is AIA Indiana and and design? Tell us a little bit about that and what the organization is and what it's for. We represent about 760 architects throughout the state of Indiana, and we are here to promote our members, but also protect our members and also promote design, good design, and why good design matters, Uh, in particular with a focus on health, safety, and welfare. I always tell people, I think most people don't understand how hard it is to become an architect. I mean, it is a lot of schooling and a lot of tests. You have to be licensed by the state. And there's a reason for that because, for example, a doctor can kill one person at a time. An architect can kill a few thousand people at a time. So making sure the built environment is taking care of personal and people needs and protecting the health, safety, and welfare of the public could not be more important. And that's one thing that AIA really focuses on is the health, safety, and welfare of individuals who are interacting with design on a daily basis in many different ways and forms. It's also the challenge of our profession, right? Because everybody sees the design, the final design, or the pretty pictures or the renderings, and they think, that's what architects do, right? They just go play on the computer, come up with the design, that's it. And that's probably 5% of what <laughs> is entailed in the project. The rest is code review, is life safety evaluation, is, is constructing things so they don't fall down, you know, coordinating again with other consultants to make sure the building's going to be standing there through natural disasters, whether it be earthquakes, tornadoes, and and it's not going to come tumbling down and, like Jason said, kill a bunch of people. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, you know, when we talk about design as a whole, how has technology, from your perspective, Jason, impacted the way that, you know, the architect works today? We're kind of at a, and it's almost like we're not even at the crossroads anymore. We're kind of like past the crossroads. At one time, there was a crossroads between those who kind of came up in the old school where everything was hand-drafted and and kind of the, what a lot of people view as an architect, you know, sitting behind a drafting board and, and really working with their hands that way to where now everyone coming out of school, it's all computer-based, which is fine. So you kind of, you still have kind of that old school group that still really has never fully embraced the technology side. And you have the younger folks who that's all they know. It's always been around them. And I think both groups have a lot to share with each other. And that's why a lot of architecture schools still require and teach hand drafting because it does impact the design. It's just that you're, you're using different parts of your brain if you actually have to sit down and kind of draw something out as opposed to you just putting things in a computer. Not that that's not important and not that that's not helpful. It just uses different parts of your brain and may make you think of the design a little differently. The other thing that we found, those who do a really good job drafting as far as business development, that goes a long way in business development. If you can sit down with a potential client and listen to them talk about, here's what we want, here's kind of how we see this, and here's what we want to use this for, and then they're drafting the entire time, right. the client's telling them this, and then they're able to literally produce a literal drawing right there before their eyes. That's a business attention getter right there. It's very similar to where when I went through uh, design school and graphic design is the emphasis that I have. Uh, we were taught to do every font, you know, in the font family and do them by hand. And that's just when 
Work Express and all those programs were just starting to come out and everybody wanted to get immediately into, you know, the computer lab and start to use Quark and that software. Why do we need to do these things with hands and and why do we need to sketch out our composition first before we really get into the computer? So on a design level, you know, graphic design, it sounds like is somewhat similar to where the industry is at today with architecture in that you could, I guess, go in and jump into, if you know the software, you know, create a, a rough layout of what the floor plan would look like. But it sounds like those that have the hand skills and the communication skills are really one up on the individuals who just run into the computer and start playing with the mouse. I mean, you really need both. I mean, to be that well-rounded firm, to be that well-rounded architect, you really need to, I think, have a mastery or at least a very good comprehension of both. Yeah. Because you talk about you know technology, you know, if you aren't able to kind of provide that kind of walkthrough so having the draft is nice and great and gets the attention. But then as you're moving through the project and you can actually have the client kind of do the walkthrough electronically. Yeah. I think it definitely you have to have both. When you look at how individuals are interacting with physical spaces today, when you, you talk about you, at one point you would, in history, you'd walk into a room and, and you would really see the architect's, you know, vision in front of you. How is the digital experience impacting what that physical space looks like today? Do you either, either one of you, like whether it be LED boards or, I mean, is that making it easier or is it making it harder to get that experience that you envision across? I think it depends on how good the designer is they're a good designer, then it's enhancing that because you can yeah. do so much more design pieces that can go from a sketch to a concept, you know, and you work with fabricators or you work with other designers, 3D printing or anything like that, laser cutting, where you can do more, but you got to be able to have that sketch and that concept. I think it's exactly probably like your profession too, Sean, where the problem is when younger people come out of school, they're jumping right in the computer. They've only been in the computer proportion, yeah. scale, it's always wrong. And it's always <laughs> missing in their design. That's what, you know, and you're like, guys, there's got to be a balance here. You're just doing something and it's not really working. It's harder to teach them that Yeah, when there is no connection to their hand. Well, and also just, you know, staying on the technology front, almost every building, every structure is filled with technology now where yeah. years ago... It, technology was kind of an afterthought. You're like, okay, let's get everything done. And then, oh, okay, oh yeah, we need some technology in here. Where now it's much more kind of integrated. It all kind of goes together all at the same time. And we're seeing that more and more. And I'm sorry, I just had to laugh because as you're saying that, you know, we had a project and I won't say where it was, but we were actually, they wanted to put LED flat screens on mm -hmm. the wall. But what they had was old tube TVs. So oh. they were actually, the wall thickness was so deep. We were like, we can save you a foot and a half here almost because they wanted, they wanted, they, well, they were getting tube. the tube TVs out. Oh my God. And then, so they, and they gained all this square footage yeah. because once you put that, the wall was so deep to mm -hmm. have it recessed yeah. in oh. the wall. So that's how one way technology is helping. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So if you were to give advice to anybody who's coming in to the industry today, Jason, what what would be some of the, the advice you'd pass along from what you've learned through AIA Indiana? If your guidance counselor tells you you need a lot of math, ignore them. Yes, that is a <laughs> that is a fallacy that 
seemingly is believed by everyone. Well, you have to be good at math if you want to be an architect. Yeah. That is not the case in any way, shape, or form. Mike could probably speak to that. I, I don't think you were a math major in uh, high school, were you? If you do anything above geometry, you're well off. Yeah. That is amazing. I'm going to have to go back and talk to Mr. Guthrie yeah. at Mount Vernon High School because that's the reason why I didn't become an architect. We had a board member when I was on the AI Indiana board that the guidance counselor told his daughter that. And okay. he had to try and convince his daughter, no, I'm an architect. <laughs> he doesn't know what he's talking about. <laughs> right. No, when I was a freshman in high school, I was at Mount Vernon High School and they had multi-level CAD labs. So I had two CAD labs that were a sign that we could use at any time in the off hours. But then we also had drafting 101. So I went through and did multiple levels of drafting all the way through till I was a, a senior. And then we had business labs as well. And I went to my guidance counselor there. I think I was a sophomore. said, so, you know, I really think that uh, architecture is something I want to do and want to explore. Uh, well, we didn't put you on the right math track for that. And after that, it was you could be a draftsman. Which was, you know, taking parts and procedures and drafting them to spec, but it wasn't using the creativity to take it to the next level. It sounds like you could have been a pretty good architect. I would have liked that. Yeah. But you know what? You know, that's that and, and we'll move on. So, okay, one of the, the pieces of advice, not looking back, we're looking forward here. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> Well, it's still out there today is why I yeah. bring it up. Yeah, yeah. Kids well, are still being told that today. Yeah, and that's actually part of our strategic plan for AI Our new strategic plan is to do more outreach to K through 12 schools trying to eliminate that fallacy and letting kids know a little bit more about the profession. And there's a lot of schools where kids will, will have never even met an architect, don't know an architect. And so just exposing more students to what architecture is, I think will go a long way because like many professions, we there's not enough architects out there for all the work that needs to be done right now. So there's that. And then as far as Getting back to your original question, advice, I think if you like to solve problems, being an architect might be right up your alley. Because I think that's one thing I think, again, the public underestimates or doesn't realize is how good architects are at solving problems. And a lot of times what I've found is our members, our architect members, uh, and for the record, I'm not an architect, but I represent the architects, but I found our members are able to solve problems that a lot of people don't even realize they didn't even know they had, or they're able to provide solutions to their clients that they didn't even know they needed a solution to. But after they, the architect has worked, I'm like, oh, I'm glad you did that because I, I would have never have thought about that or I would have never made that decision without the architect there to kind of lead them through the process. And so if you enjoy solving problems, I think the architecture profession would be right up your alley. What's one of the biggest challenges that you've experienced as being the executive director of AIA in Indiana, the things that, that you see on a daily basis? I think just overall in Indiana, I say Indiana is like the tale of two cities when it comes to good design. Okay. On the one hand, you have Indiana is you know conservative, very cost conscientious. We don't like to be real flashy which often can sometimes lead to less than ideal designs. Because at the end of the day, our members you know, work for clients who are, and the clients are the ones paying the bills. Our members, I think, do a really good job of trying to explain why good design matters from a sense point, both knowledge sense and money sense. We have lots of room to improve on design. But then in you know, the tale of two cities, you have like one of the greatest examples of why good design matters in the entire world 
uh, in Columbus, Indiana. Uh, Columbus, Indiana is the sixth highest ranked architecturally significant city in the entire United States. And it's right here in Indiana. And that was pushed by J. Irwin Miller, who was the head of Cummins Engine. And he knew for Cummins to attract and retain the best employees, one way to do that was with good design, both in their factories and their offices, but as well throughout the community, whether it be in churches, firehouses, schools, libraries. So you have this massive juxtaposition there to have the sixth most architecturally significant city in the entire United States here in Indiana. But yet you still have that, hey, we don't want to show off. We need to pinch our pennies. Mm -hmm. So let's maybe cut a few corners here and there. And I think that's probably one of the biggest challenges our members have is trying to break out of that kind of constricted design bubble that a lot of owners have. Well, when you, you talk about the being conservative and, and you look at where the states are at and trying to recruit new organizations and recruit new talent, how does that impact uh, Indiana as, as a whole? Oh, it, it's, it's massive because I think right now, Indiana's done a really good job of kind of creating you know, a proper business climate through taxes, regulations, things like that. They've gone above and beyond. Uh, so we're extremely competitive when it comes to that. But I think now state policymakers are realizing, well, that's, that's not all there is to it. You have to have quality of life amenities to attract people. And that's why you see places like Denver and Austin, Texas continue to grow, Nashville, Tennessee, because design matters. And yes. the sense of place and those amenities that good design brings matter. And I think now the state is kind of realizing that it's like, hey, we've done a really good job of creating a, a proper business environment, but we need to do the other things now to compete. Uh, because, you know, is there, uh, everybody, but, you know, we don't have any mountains and don't really have any oceans. You know, we have Lake Michigan and the Ohio River. Uh, Use your national forest in between, yeah. and that's about it. But it's, so you have to use, you know, a little bit more creative thinking. And I think that's where architects can come in and make a difference. Yeah. So what's your favorite aspect of design as a non-architect, mm -hmm. correct? Yeah. I, I have always had a love of historic architecture, historic preservation. To me, there's no, nothing more fascinating. And, you know, going back to my very beginning, you know, born and raised in historic downtown Madison. When I was a kid, downtown Madison's where all the poor people lived and all the rich people lived on the hill. But yet the entire downtown is on the National Register of Historic Places. And so all these beautiful old historic homes were chopped up crappy apartments. And so when I was my younger years, I saw these people who realized, oh, my goodness, this is a masterpiece of a historic home. I could buy this for like next to nothing invest in it and make it a beautiful show place. And so we had people coming from, or in Madison had people coming from all over the country discovering this. And so I, you know, and I have no mechanical skills. So I was, when I was in high school, I would work on some of these projects. When I say I would work on them, mm -hmm. I was like just hauling crap around uh, and moving things and doing demo and things like that. There's no skilled labor in my blood, sadly. But I was able to see firsthand that, okay, it does take a little extra effort and it might take a little bit extra cost, yeah. but man, you cannot. And I remember there, in particular, there was a home that I was helping out, uh, working on, and it was right across the street from the Lanier home, State Historic Mansion in downtown Madison. 
And when I first got there, I'm like, why wouldn't you just, I mean, they had it down to the studs. And I'm like, why would you just tear this thing? It would be a lot cheaper just to tear this thing down and build something new. Yeah. And then as the project progressed and was finally complete, it was like an instant snap. I'm like, oh my God, this is why you take the extra time and the extra effort because it's irreplaceable. And coming back to you know Indiana's conservative nature, there's nothing more conservative than historic preservation. Retaining and renovating our, our past structures, I think there's nothing more important. And the most energy efficient building is one that's already built because you aren't bringing in new stuff. You know, so you know, updating an historic home is going to be much more environmentally friendly than building something new. So it, it hits a lot of points. And I think that's one thing we're thankful for Indiana Landmarks. We work with them pretty closely on projects. And in particular, working within the, in the state legislature on trying to improve Indiana's historic preservation grant program now. Mike, Jason talked a little bit about that. What struggles do you see when it comes to, hey, let's just take and remove that whole section and, and build new? I mean, is, is that a, a challenge daily for you and on the street every day as an architect? Yeah, I wouldn't necessarily say it's daily, but everyone always asks the questions the first time you meet with a client. Is it worth saving? Yeah. And you kind of have to take an inventory and you get somewhere around, hey, we're not going to save or we're going to have to demo or get rid of 70% of this building. It's probably better to tear it down, more cost effective. Yeah. But I think it just depends on the structure. You know, I don't think every structure is worth saving necessarily because, you know, Bad design has happened all throughout time. <laughs> yeah, there has been some bad design yeah, out there. So I think it just takes people with an eye to see that the buildings were saving and how are we going to do this? Even if you're just saving the shell of the building, I think mm-hmm. it, it can be worth it. But I'm always one. I always feel like there's two camps. There's the save it, mm-hmm. make it like it was back in 1900 when it was built. That means a lot of handcrafted detailing, mm-hmm. which no one wants to pay for, really. Or... <laughs> You, you kind of keep what you can and modernize the rest and use modern materials. I think anytime you try to match, it's an abysmal failure every time. It's going to be noticeable and it's not going to stand up over time. Well, Jason, as the executive director of, for the listeners out there who do not know what AIA stands for or AIA Indiana, it's the American Institute of Architects and we have the Indiana chapter. What makes AIA Indiana stand out amongst its peers? Yeah, I, th- I think our members in particular. We have the best and the worst thing about working for AIA Indiana is our members are full of good ideas. You almost can't stop them. They're just, they're just filled with good ideas. So every time I meet with a member, it's like I'll get two or three good ideas. And so the problem is, okay, we can't do everything. We'd like to because they're all really good ideas. And so trying to continually kind of pare that back and make sure we continue to focus on our mission. To me, it's the best and the worst thing about AIA is like we almost have too many good ideas to the point where you're doing so many different things. Then somebody's like, well, what are you guys doing anyway? Because you're spread so thin. Um, So it's a constant battle to kind of winnow those things down and stay on point and stay on the mission and, you know, that is, you know, promoting and protecting our members and promoting uh, good design and protecting good design and taking care of the health, safety and welfare of Hoosiers. How many uh, members does AIA Indiana currently have? Uh, 760. 760. And those are all architects? Mm-hmm. 
Nice. So when you look at the challenges, once again, that you faced, you know, during your time at AIA Indiana, where everybody talks about, we've talked a little bit about it, that technology, that barrier, what gap is that causing in the industry today? And, And is there any ways that AIA Indiana is helping to promote the use of technology or help its members understand that? Mm-hmm. I think for the most part, most of our members are actually problem solvers. Yeah. And so those are internal problems and internal, and I think they view it as internal opportunities. And so I think our members have done a pretty good job of kind of wrestling that issue and moving forward because I've been with AI for 12 years now. And so when I first started, you definitely heard more grumblings of people like, and this is always the worst excuse in the world. Well, we've always done it this way. And so you kind of had to push some to uh, kind of move into the current century. But I think we've moved past that now. And I think most of our members have embraced, they realize, okay, we have to keep up with technology or we're just going to get passed by. Yeah, really, you know, when I look at my list here, it's, you know, Asking that question a different way really is how has the technology that we have today changed the way in which you and AIA operates? Is it still a a face-to-face organization or is a lot of it done through CRM tools? And, and, you know, how do you operate as as an organization today? Yeah, the short answer is yes. Um, In the end, no matter how good the technology is, there's nothing that replaces, you know, face-to-face communication. And so... My goal is always to get out and to meet literally one-on-one with members as often as possible because you can't replace that. But at the same time, that also enhances all the electronic means of communication you use. So when they say, oh, Jason was just down in Evansville and I talked to him the other day, I better look at that email he just sent out. Or, hey, the AIA Indiana just sent out a new newsletter. I just talked to Jason. I wonder if he mentioned that one thing I told him about in the newsletter. And so we do use a lot of Eventbrite, constant contact. Those things are part of daily business. But again, I think you're selling yourself short if you're just like, well, I'm just going to sit here and send out emails and use constant contact and call it a day. Uh, you literally have to get out and pound the pavement. Well, I think it's the knowledge base you can gain too. Like oh. National doing a great job with the knowledge communities. Yeah. And the webinars and all this stuff where in the past, not that long ago, mm-hmm. if you said 20 years, but, you know, you had to go to conventions and you had to listen to people speak to learn anything. And that was like once, a, twice a mm-hmm. year. Now you just hop on the AI website. Mm-hmm. You're plugged into every new trend, every new. And so I think that's what's really changing with technology in our industry. The mm-hmm. biggest for me as an architect mm-hmm. is that access to the knowledge that you didn't have. Mike, you said that, you know, the website and, and the technology is one of the ways AIA Indiana stands out. You know, what's the trends in social media and how you're getting the word out through, you know, social media. You talked about email, you talked about newsletters and, and those things. Is, is social media real for, yes. for you? Yes, very real. Um, pretty much Wherever I go, whatever I do, I'm going to be posting something on social media. And usually, I won't say it's always, but you know, Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram. Those are my main social media tools. But I use each one of them a little bit differently. I probably post to Twitter more than anything else, then probably LinkedIn, then Facebook, and then Instagram. But I'm trying to actually move Instagram up the road a little bit because I think more and more, especially our younger the emerging professionals, I think, prefer 
Instagram, probably more so than anything else. Facebook, you can reach, I hate to say, you know, our more seasoned architects. Right. Um, Instagram, definitely you're getting some of the younger folks. Twitter also. Twitter's kind of a unique little universe. Some people completely hate it and don't want anything to do with it. Others, that's all they look at. Yeah. And then it seems like firm leaders, LinkedIn seems to be like their social media method of choice. And so with all that being said, you got to be on every platform and be there consistently. And I don't necessarily think, you know, you don't have to have groundbreaking news every time. A lot of it's just yeah. like, hey, I mean, like we had a, a little session with our AA Indiana, Southern Indiana section over at the library with a product representative talking about what they have and how it can enhance design. And so just some, sending out something simple as, hey, we're we're here at the library learning about this new product just to let people know, hey, there's there's activity, there's things going on. I just think you have to be consistent with it. And you, you probably need to be in all those forms. I'm, and I'm always fascinated when I see, you know, some people are on only on certain forms, but it's just the way of the world. Some people, I'm only going to be on Facebook or I'm only going to be Twitter. Um, I think you almost have to pay attention to all of them. And there's probably some that I'm well, missing. You've, a, you've just done a great job of getting our profession in Indiana knowledgeable about the government affairs and, and things happening at the state house that affect us as architects. Yes. And sometimes it just takes that nudge. Like I'll be at a state building commission meeting or a state licensing board meeting and i'll just send something out here's the agenda and here they are you know always with a photo you know photo can say a thousand words right and sometimes that'll jar somebody like oh well jason's there i need to call aa about this issue i've been having so it's just making sure our members know that hey we're active we're doing things we're all over we're out there and a lot of times that'll get somebody's attention be like oh yeah i need to call jason about this issue we're having with you know, State Department of Health or professional licensing agency, what have you. When you uh, talk about legislation and you talk about technology integration and you talk about all these things, what are some of the challenges uh, you face on a day-to-day basis at AIA Indiana? And how does that coincide with what the architecture professionals are seeing as well? So are there any challenges? Yeah. Um, again, one thing that's been kind of an issue we've been working on kind of consistently is building codes okay. and Indiana has not kept up with updating our building codes. And that has a direct impact on health, safety, and welfare. It has a direct impact on, you know, the whole placemaking. So when you have, you know, these big high tech, cool companies come in and they're like, Oh, I, what do you mean your building codes from 2012? I mean, it doesn't necessarily send a positive message that Indiana is the super forward thinking place when we're dealing with building codes that are that are out of date. And in particular, you know, I, I keep harping on, you know, the health, safety and welfare aspect of it. There's a reason why the you know codes are updated on a regular basis is because there's advances in technology that impact health, safety and welfare. I right. mean, for example, our electrical code doesn't basically does not even recognize LED. Wow. That's not <laughs> that is not a good message to send to the rest of the world. And I know Mike uh, in you know healthcare design, the guidelines there were so old they you they would have to get a variance just to they still required um those X-ray boxes. Yeah, few boxes. I mean in, in OR rooms and you know wow. Filmics where are you storing your film? Where are you processing your film? It's like people haven't used film in 15 years, yeah. people. And so we, they would, yeah. our members would have to literally go in and get a variance and say, by the way, 
none of this is used anymore. Right. Because they hadn't updated the guidelines. You know, I think finally the guidelines are. Be January 1, I believe. Yeah. So we, and that was something that we as an organization pushed for. It's like, okay, these really need to be updated. This is yeah. ridiculous. Because x ray professionals can be anywhere, you know, the individuals that well, are. Well, they ready. are now. We, yeah. I mean, you have the x ray imaging areas and it gets sent to wherever the doctor is in the city. They might right. have three locations, mm-hmm. they might be at home. And it gets sent to their monitor. They review it. uh, That's how it's done nowadays. But they go by the guidelines, and that's what the guidelines say. So that's a challenge that is probably our biggest challenge is, you know, kind of pushing our state policymakers to kind of recognize that it's not good business to have building codes that are that out of date. What are some good uses of... AI, you know, from Jason's perspective, what are some good uses of machine learning and augmented reality? And that's one of the things that uh, in our industry is big with mobile apps. And, you know, I can put my phone up and I can put it over the space and oh, something interacts and comes out. Or, you know, you get into the virtual reality, which is, you know, the full uh, immersive experience with the headset. And then you, you have other things like machine learning, and artificial intelligence. And how is that going to shape the future of architecture? You know, I think currently right now, it's still it's still evolving. And there's definitely not a one-size-fits-all approach to that yet. And I think it's something that's still evolving kind of within each firm and within the profession as a whole. I think it's going to be a lot like renderings. Yeah. You know, 15, 20 years ago, renderings came out and it was like, oh, you got to go find somebody to do a rendering, do a rendering. And Firms that were doing renderings were charging for them, or they're asking if you want this and they're increasing their fees or doing all this stuff. And now we've gotten to the point where it's like you do any size project, they're expected to see a rendering. Right. And I think that's where VR and AR, I mean, I think mm-hmm. all that technology is going to be integrated one day to where it's normal. But right now we're just on the cusp. Mm-hmm. So it's still definitely still evolving. Do you? Mike or or Jason, do you feel that, I think on our last podcast, I talked a little bit about this, is it going to create that cookie cutter design in the future that we hope that uh, it doesn't turn into from my perspective of when we build websites and we went through a a phase where everything was, you know, in a box and fully uh, immersive in the screen. And now it's coming back into modular based. And, and if you go to one website, it starts to look like another website and everybody's like, oh, that's a WordPress website. Is the architecture world going to see that phase? Yeah, I'll let Jason answer that uh, <laughs> before I give my answer. I'm going to be really curious about your answer. But I, I think to do it right, I mean, one one issue that we've faced before in the legislature, and it comes up every now and again, and we've always been able to beat it back, is the whole you know Little Red Schoolhouse or cookie right. cutters. It's like, well, hey, why do we need architects to design you know all these different schools? Why don't we just have, if you're building a middle school, here's one design. If you're building elementary, here's one design. And just go at it like that. Wouldn't we save a lot of money if we did that? Right. And that's just bad on so many different different levels because, okay, there's a big difference between building a school in Mitchell, Indiana and South Bend. There's different weather. There's different snow loads. You know, how many special needs kids are going to be in the school? Uh, are you going to have a pool or no pool? Is, you know, is it in an urban area or is it in a rural area? Can you build flat across miles and miles or do you need to go vertical? Right. Um, does it need to be implemented in a neighborhood or are you putting it out in a cornfield? And, you know, we're not building Burger Kings. It doesn't work that way. There's you know, nothing against Burger King. But um, this is for 
kids and learning experiences. Yes. And so it shouldn't be that way. And it kind of goes into the meat of the question even more. Good design should fit the client and should fit, fit the client's needs as opposed to, well, here, just take this design we've done a thousand times over and over again, and you make it work for you. And like, no, good architects, they work with the client and they make it work for them. And so there's always some of that going on out there where it's, oh, we just push these out one at a time. Yeah. But in the long run, that's not good for the client. It's not good for the profession and it's not good for design in general. And it's definitely not good for, uh, again, we kind of go back to this whole, okay, what makes your state and your city attractive to the best and the brightest, the creative classes, so to speak. It's not everything looking the same. Yeah. And all the facial recognition and the heat mapping that goes on to some of the, the websites that we use today and, and build. And then even when you walk into the grocery store, you know, the maps on the end caps that are there from a marketing perspective of they're actually able to read the facial recognition, like they can immediately tell within, you know, X amount of hours that that product is going to work or it needs needs to be moved. And, you know, all that data mining, I can't help but think down the road, that type of, of experience when individuals are looking at maybe renovating a space or when that type of technology being used potentially. I think all the technology that's coming about in architecture is going to lead to more customized the client needs mm-hmm. what they want buildings are interactive they're experiential yeah nobody wants that in healthcare now they want to experience the hospital you know they want to see this mm-hmm. cool space they want it to be like a hotel a higher ed same way you know you're trying to attract students the last thing you're going to do is have a cookie cutter stadium that's mm-hmm. five different locations across you know you're not trying to replicate michigan university's basketball stadium in, in southern indiana it's not going to work. The kids right. aren't going to go for it. Right. And, and and I think it's all about that. And it's all going to be even more customized with these tools because people are going to be able to experience and see it and be, be immersed in it before it's even built. That's a great point of being able to really, you know, go through the whole design process and see it, feel it before that, you know, first wall is built, before the foundation is really, you know, laid to be able to go and feel what it's going to be like to walk into that space and, and hopefully be able to cut down on, on a lot of that. Well, we've just built it, but now we realize that there's that extra, you know, two feet that need to be added to that room. I think the increased use of technology in our profession is just going to continue to lead to better and better design. Well, we're reaching a 45-minute point. I see Kat over there letting us know. She's tapping on the watch there. I'm going to ask a few personal questions, if you don't mind, Jason. Do you listen to any podcast? Do you have a favorite that you'd like to recommend to our listeners? Yeah. Um, 99% Invisible yeah. is fantastic. And it's definitely a podcast that you don't have to be an architect or a designer to listen to it, to get information out of it. I mean, it's, I think it's one of the better podcasts going. We actually had Roman Mars. Uh, he was one of our keynote speakers at our national convention this year and was extremely well-received. Yeah. So as far as design-related podcasts, architecture-related, if you're going to listen to one, that'd be the best one. Well, but to expand on that, because I love that podcast too, mm-hmm. The reason it's called 99% Invisible for people that don't know might be listening. First time is it's all about design that's hidden that you don't necessarily see or realize you're seeing 
uh, in your communities and around the or country, e- or even on television, or even on television, yeah, or flags. Yeah, I mean, it go, I mean, I'm one of the, one of the yeah. episodes that stuck with me is they talked about alleys of New York City in okay. TV and films, and come to find out, there's really no alleys in New York City. <laughs> there's like one alley, and they have to use it over and over and over again. So, like every scene of an alley in New York City is in the same alley that there's constantly film crews in kind of redesigning it or making it a little bit uglier. Uh, so it shows like a gritty alley in New York City, but in yeah. in reality, there's really not any alleys add, in New York City. Well, to add to that, though, my favorite real quick was the Army Corps of Engineers built the whole Mississippi Delta to explore flooding. Mm-hmm. And it was a, it's a scale model. It still exists. It's still out there. It's overgrown with weeds now. And the reason they don't use it anymore is because of computer technology. They can do it on oh. the computer. So... What, uh, as an IndyCar fan, mm-hmm. what are some of the similarities between the design of IndyCars and, and, and architecture? Yeah. We had this, uh, kind of a real-world example. We had an IndyCar designer come in and speak to a group of our members a few years ago. And, and this is kind of deep IndyCar stuff. The whole Delta Wing concept was being thrown out there. And so uh, Ben Bulby was the designer's name. He worked for uh, Ganassi racing. And we had him come in and speak to our members. And it was an amazing to watch the synergy just explode between our members and Ben Bowlby, the race car designer. I mean, it was a constant sharing of design thought and technique. I mean, something as simple as, you know, when they unveiled the concept car, it was gray. And one of our members came up and was like, why was it gray? Yeah. Why wouldn't you make this thing red? Why wouldn't you have something that's really going to stand out where, you, you know, gray almost means you're like embarrassed of it. Um, mm-hmm. And you could see him just like, why didn't I think of that? So I think designers, whether you're designing an IndyCar, a website, a home, a park, yeah. they all kind of have that unique mindset because I'm not necessarily a good designer um, at all. I don't design, but I'm always fascinated to be in those conversations because it's just a constant. You can just see light bulbs just popping up above people's heads uh, when you get those that mix of designers, whether it's, you know, like say a park or a race car or home or toys or websites. It's, it's, it's a fascinating process to, to watch and observe. So for the listeners out there, how can they find Jason and how can they get a hold of AI? A Indiana. Yeah. Um, easy to find. AIIndiana.org is our website, but we're also on Twitter. Jason Shelley. LinkedIn is where we do you know, all the AI Indiana LinkedIn stuff. Uh, we're on Instagram. We're on Facebook. So if you're on any kind of social media platform, you can find us pretty easily. Awesome. Well, we thank you for coming in and being a part of the uh, At 530 on Main podcast series. Uh, one of our first members to come in and, and have a conversation with us. We appreciate you spending your time with us today. And It's, it's been great, Sean. I really appreciate the, uh, the opportunity and the offer. Awesome. Awesome. Mike, any uh, closing thoughts? No, just thanks, Jason, for coming down, making the trip as always. And My pleasure. Always appreciate when you're in town. I love it down here. All right. Well, thank you so much. Thanks. Thanks again for tuning in to this episode of At 530 on Main, hosted by Sean Collins and Mike Davis. Please leave us a review and share your thoughts on today's episode. Let us know how you've been inspired or what you would like to hear on future episodes. And if you've enjoyed the conversation, help us spread the word. Share us on your social channels. Message a friend. Rate the podcast. 
Without you, this experience would not be possible. 